God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel today, that even though we are imperfect people, even though we could never uh, do enough right things to earn our salvation before you, you know our weakness and you know our faults and you sent your son to rescue us instead of condemning us. We thank you so much for that. And I pray that we would be a community who is shaped by the gospel. So I pray that you would use your word today to help us know what that means, to help us know what it means to be a church that is shaped by the gospel. So we pray that you would instruct us by the power of your spirit and by your word this morning. We pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Now, this past week I came across a, a, an interesting uh, list. It was uh, 25 silly things that churches have uh, fought about. Uh, and I won't read the whole list for you, but I'll just give you just kind of a feel for, for what has caused different divisions and uh, different fights in the church. So one church had the audacity to uh, change the coffee that they were serving, and they went from kind of a weaker blend to a stronger, bolder blend. And the effect of that was actually that people got so upset that there were people that actually left the church because of uh, this new coffee that they were serving. Another church had a three-hour-long congregational meeting to decide on whether or not to buy a new vacuum cleaner. Three hours debating this. Finally, they got the vote passed through, but then, get this, there was a motion at the end that only certain people would be allowed to use the vacuum cleaner because it was, after all, a new vacuum cleaner. Um, apparently, vacuums are kind of a hot topic in churches. There was another church that um, apparently a group of members was, was hiding the vacuum cleaner from another group of members. It caused a big split, actually like divided the church into major fight, big split about the whole thing. Another church, uh, a women's committee, had a, an hour-long discussion over uh, how to slice the dinner rolls for their next women's event, whether they should do it vertically or horizontally. An hour-long heated discussion, and one person suggested, well, can we just have the person who makes the rolls make that decision? And the answer was absolutely no. We're going to make this decision as a team, and they are going to do what we're talking about here. Another church had a fight over whether they could serve deviled eggs at a church function, because that seemed maybe just a little bit off, and someone suggested maybe if you also serve angel food cake, then it's okay, because you can kind of balance it out a little bit. Uh, another church was uh, fighting about whether or not they should call their, uh, their events potluck dinners. They thought maybe pot blessing would be a, a better way of putting it, uh, so it's not luck, it's blessing, uh, but then in states like Washington and Colorado, it might have kind of a little bit of a different feel for what a pot blessing uh, might look like. So you've got to be a little careful uh, as you get into that. A couple people got that. Uh, it's easy to uh, make fun of these things because they're just ridiculous, right? And you look at them objectively and think, why would anyone actually fight about this? But of course, there's, there's always deeper things beneath the surface. As I was uh, sharing this with someone this week, they, they very wisely said, you know what, the fight's not about coffee. The fight's not about a vacuum cleaner. There is something else going on there. There are some deeper divisions. There's some deep pain there that hasn't been dealt with. And this is just the presenting issue that ends up splitting the church. But, but there's real conflict sometimes in church. We, we have to find a, a better way of being able to handle it. See, these, these kind of fights, these silly things, they're not what Jesus wants for his church. In fact, we see Jesus praying for, for his church in, in John chapter 17, he's first praying for uh, those who are his immediate disciples who are walking with him, and then he looks forward to, to us and, and the day that we will believe in him. And, and here's what he prays for us, for his church. He says, my prayer is not for them alone, his, his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, people like you and me, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you loved me. See, Jesus prays for us. He prays that we would be one. We'd be so unified that it would be a a witness to those who don't yet know Jesus that the gospel is powerful and the gospel is true. So how do we actually live as that kind of a community? That's what we're going to look at uh, today. We'll be back in our our winter series in the book of Exodus next week. But uh, today we're going to look at what it means for us to be a healthy uh, community. So grab a Bible. We're going to turn to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 35. If you want, you can grab a Bible from the pew rack. Uh, Matthew 18, 15 is found on page 1530. And if you'd like, you can even take uh, the pew Bible home. We'd love to give you that as a gift from our church family. This is a really great passage because it gives us uh, clear teaching from Jesus that puts us on the right track for dealing well with conflict and learning to be a healthy, gospel-shaped community. And in particular, it means that we need to be marked by truth and grace. So let's look at, as we look through the text here, we're going to see that first we need to be a community marked by truth, and then we're going to see that we need to be a community that's marked by grace as well. So we're going to follow the text here and start with what it means for us to be marked by truth. It means that we correct one another. Look at John, excuse me, not John, Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out the fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. So so we have to start by pointing out the obvious. Jesus here is anticipating that Christians are going to sin. This is probably not very surprising if you've been around Christians at all. But it's worth saying, there will be sin in the church. There will be conflict in the church. What's important is for us to deal with it in healthy ways, to deal with it rightly in obedience to Jesus. And so Jesus gives us very clear instructions for how to deal with this. Now, for some of us, what Jesus says is not very comfortable to actually practice, but it is very clear. He gives clear instructions. If someone sins, then you go directly to that person one-on-one. You have a personal, private conversation with that person. No one else needs to be brought in on it at this point. The intent is to keep it as as confidential, as personal as possible. And in the best-case scenario, they hear you, they are able to turn from that destructive behavior, and then that's the end of it. You've won them over. That's great. But of course, that doesn't always happen. Verse 16, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So if the person listens to you and they turn back from their sin, there's no need to bring anyone else into it. It's already taken care of them. But if they don't listen, you go and find one or two other people and you bring them along with you as well. Now the intent here is is not to bully the person, but for them to understand how serious what they're doing is. You're not trying to kind of gang up on them. You're trying to help them see that this isn't just one person's opinion. This is the church trying to pull people back to God's standard. And if they listen, great, that's the end of it. If not, the conflict has to escalate. Verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So if if the one-on-one conversation doesn't help them turn, and if bringing two or three other, if a conversation with two or three doesn't help them turn, then it becomes a matter for the church. The whole community of faith then is potentially impacted by the person's refusal to turn away from their sinful action. 
And again, the intent here is to help them see that, that what they're doing is not right, help them to see the, the seriousness of what's happening here. And this isn't a retributive kind of a thing. This, this isn't about punishing the person. The hope here is that you will bring them back to God's way. And the fact that this is the intent of that is made clear by the context of the passage. The, the story right before what we're looking at here is a story about, that Jesus tells about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. And one of them wanders. He leaves the 99 and goes after that one sheep. Now, if you've been at Trinity for some time, that's a pretty familiar passage for us. And when Jesus tells that story in Luke chapter 15, it's about people who are not yet part of the church. This is how God uh, thinks of those who are far from him. He, wants, he sends Jesus to go and seek and save those who are far from him and bring them back. But here Jesus tells that same story with a different intent. This is about those who are part of the church family who have wandered off and we're going and bringing them back into the fold. This is God seeking people back into the church. So, so for us as followers of Jesus, if we see someone who's caught in behavior that goes against a gospel lifestyle, we as their brothers and sisters have a responsibility to go after them and to, to bring them back. We don't want them running away. We don't want them to destroy themselves. See, followers of Jesus have a sacred responsibility to other followers of Jesus. They are our family members. They are our brothers and sisters. We are called to love each other enough to actually have these really difficult conversations. And Jesus reminds us that, that what we're doing here is, is serious business. Verse 18, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two are... On, excuse me, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. Now, there's a long history of interpretation here, lots of questions about what binding and loosing is all about. Binding is basically not forgiving, loosing would be forgiving. Uh, my understanding of this is it's the church's responsibility to proclaim uh, God's terms of forgiveness that he offers us in Jesus. So sins are forgiven as we bring them to the cross and we accept God's forgiveness in him. That's the primary part about what this is about. And then further, that the gathering of two or three reminds us that, that this whole process is about seeking God's will. This isn't about someone trying to kind of impose their own will on others. This is the church seeking God's will and then calling the Christian community to live according to God's word. Now, as simple and clear as Jesus' instructions are here, we have to admit that, that for most of us, this is really difficult stuff. I mean, actually, our, our normal practice, if you look at this, is actually the opposite of what Jesus tells us to do. So rather than going directly to the person and having a personal conversation with him, usually we go to a third person and talk about that person. So if I have a problem with Luke, I'm going to go to John and talk about how I'm concerned about what John is doing. Uh, Jim Van Eypern, who works a lot with church conflict resolution, he calls this the sin of triangulation. Instead of following Jesus' instructions to go to that person, you're talking about it with someone else and bringing them into it. But this is hugely problematic because it, it takes away the opportunity for that person to repent. It takes away the opportunity for them to grow out of this. It removes the opportunity for forgiveness. And then by bringing other people into it, it poisons the whole community of faith. Jesus calls us to a better way, and his instructions are, are clear, and they're much better than how we typically deal with this. So I distinctly remember this uh, incident from childhood. I was probably about five years old. 
My family had gone to the grocery store, and when we got back in the car, uh, my sister pulled out a pack of bubble gum. And this was unusual because my mom didn't usually buy us bubble gum, and my mom, turns out, did not buy bubble gum that day. And so after some sleuthing, it was discovered that my sister had stolen the gum. So what does my mom do? She marches her back into the store, and she has to go and talk to the cashier and pay for it and all this stuff. And, and then she talks to her about why stealing is wrong, and, and my sister breaks down in tears of repentance. I'm pretty sure my sister never stole anything again the rest of her life that had that big of an impact on her. Now, that's not how we usually deal with sin and conflict in the church. And in fact, in most adult situations, that's not how we deal with things. So if my mom was going to follow the typical pattern, she would have been too embarrassed to walk back into the store. She wouldn't have actually talked to my sister about what was wrong and how to change her behavior. Instead, she would have looked for an opportunity when my sister wasn't there and come talk to me and whisper in my ear that she's really worried about my sister turning into a terrible thief and a robber and going to ruin her whole life, bless her soul. See, if my mom had responded like that, she, she would have robbed my sister of a chance to actually learn. Instead of helping her grow and develop, instead of nurturing her, she would have alienated her and allowed her to continue on a path that would have ended in self-destruction. It's an opportunity to learn and grow, and instead it would turn into an opportunity for gossip and shaming and isolation. See, we instinctively know better. As we're parents, we, we instinctively know that this is not how we do things, and yet somehow we shy away from this when it comes to adults, when it comes to our church family. And we come up with all sorts of different reasons why we don't have to do this. We think, well, it's not that big of a deal. I'll just kind of get over it. Or, or maybe it's not technically a sin. Or, you know what, someone else will address this. Isn't, isn't that the pastor's job to kind of deal with, with those kind of hard things? So, well, you know what, they're, they're probably not going to listen to me anyway, so I'm just, I'm not going to waste my time. But really, these are all just excuses for us to not obey the clear teaching of Jesus. We need to come back to the gospel to see that the gospel frees us to be the kind of community that can speak truth to one another. See, we don't have to pretend to be perfect people because our salvation doesn't rest on what we have done. It doesn't rest on our performance. It rests on the finished work of Jesus. This is the heart of the Christian message. We are not saved because we are so good. We are saved because we have such a good Savior. He died on a cross for us, and that means that everything wrong we've done in the past and everything we've done wrong today and everything wrong we've done in the future is already forgiven through faith in Him. He has already offered us salvation and forgiveness. Now, if our salvation was based on our performance or our ability to do the right thing, then the type of conversation that Jesus is talking about here would be devastating. It would call into question our, our salvation. But instead, because our salvation is secure in him, because this is not a performance-based salvation, we are free to tell other people the truth, and we are free to receive the truth from other people. We are free to offer correction to others, and we're free to offer and to receive correction ourselves. See, it's so vital for us to be a community that, that lives by the gospel. And part of what that means is for us to be willing to be a community of truth, to be willing to do the hard work of correcting one another. It's a crucial part of what it means to be a healthy, gospel-shaped community. We are a community of truth as we correct one another. Of course, this also has to be tied to grace as well. So as we continue in the passage, we see how we have to be marked by grace as well. We have to be willing to forgive one another. So verse 21, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, 
how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, Peter's listening to what Jesus is saying here, and he knows that an implication of this is that we're going to have to forgive, right? If you go to someone and correct them, and they repent of that, then you have to actually forgive. And so Peter assumes that there's going to be a limit on the number of times that this has to happen. After all, if you go to someone, they've sinned against you, and they apologize, you forgive them, and then they do the same thing again, well, it calls into question the genuineness of their repentance, right? And so he assumes that there has to be a limit on this or people will take advantage of it. And so Peter suggests maybe seven times to forgive someone. And really, Peter's being pretty generous here. If you look at Jewish thought of this day, they would say three times you can be forgiven for something, and the fourth time, well, you're out of luck. So Peter says, well, okay, well, let's be really generous. How about seven times we forgive someone? Now, in light of that, what Jesus says here is shocking. How about 77 times? In other words, there is no limit to the number of times that we are called to forgive. And that's a really radical answer. Why does Jesus say this? Well, he tells a story to illustrate. Verse 23, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now, this sounds cruel to our ears, but this would have been a normal way of dealing with debt in the ancient world. And the debt here that this guy owed is, is incredible. It's the equivalent of zillions of dollars for us. It, it's, an, it's a huge amount of money, the, the highest amount of money that you could possibly imagine. So there's no way this guy is ever going to be able to pay this back. And so the consequence is that he's going to be sold, his wife's going to be sold, his kids are going to be sold, everything he owns is going to be sold. Verse 26. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. So the man is at the end of himself. There's nothing he can do. And so he just pleads for mercy. He pleads for patience. He makes this audacious claim that he's actually going to pay everything back. There's no way that's ever going to be possible. But, but he just throws himself on the mercy of the king. And the king not only has pity on the man, but he goes way beyond what he's asking. And he says, your debt is now zero. You don't owe anything. And you can imagine how, how grateful the man would be. Verse 28. But then that servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he should pay the debt. The man who had just been forgiven everything with this impossible debt encounters now the same situation but on a comparatively microscopic level. And in light of what has just happened to him, his response is, is almost incomprehensible. It, it's the same scenario. Just like he fell on his knees and begged the king, now his fellow servant is falling on his knees and begging him for mercy. But rather than responding the same, same way, he responds with violence. Verse 31, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. 
You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The forgiven servant's actions are just unbelievable in, what has ha- in light of what has happened to him. He has experienced this profound, life-changing grace, and that should lead him to respond to a fellow servant with that same kind of grace. The fact that he doesn't is, is just ridiculous, and that's what Jesus is saying. See, the reality is God has forgiven you and I an impossible debt. Every single one of us is a sinner. Every single one of us has rebelled against God. We have turned away from him. We have, we have ignored his commands. We have effectively shaken our fists at him. We have been vandals in his good creation. What we deserve is condemnation. But instead, God sent his son to rescue us. That is the, the amazing grace of God. We have forgiveness in Jesus. And because we have been forgiven, we then must be people who forgive others. To do otherwise, to somehow limit the number of times it will forgive someone or the amount that will forgive someone, it, it just doesn't make any sense in light of the power of the gospel. And, and so in this community of faith, the community of followers of Jesus in the church, we are called to forgiveness with no limits at all. See, we are a community that's marked by grace as we forgive one another. So we refuse to hold grudges. We refuse to to hold slights against one another. We refuse to keep a record of number of times that we've been wronged. Instead, we forgive. And think about this again with parenting. We, We instinctively know this as we raise kids. I don't know of any parent who keeps track of all of the costs and all the times they've forgiven their children. Think about it. You could, you could have an amazing Excel spreadsheet for each one of your kids, and you have a tab for the amount of dollars that you spent on that child. This is the extra uh, money for food, the extra money for diapers, the extra money for clothes. I'm going to keep a record of every single one of those things, and you have another tab for hours of sleep lost. Okay, I was up with you when you were a baby this night and that night, and then you, I had to get up and, and take you to the bathroom that night. So these are all the hours of sleep I've lost, and then another another tab, and this is all the times I've forgiven you, so there was that time that you ruined my favorite shirt when you puked on it when you were just a little baby, and there was the other time that you broke that my favorite coffee mug, and that was not very good, and there was the other time. So all these records, no parent does that, right? It's absurd. And yet, somehow we we, we allow this to, to have it happen in the church. It's absurd that we would do this to hold grudges, to keep a record of every slight and every, every wrong, every mistake, to refuse to forgive, to refuse to reconcile. It's, it's absurd in light of the gospel. And yet we do it. This happens in churches. All, all those silly fights that we talked about earlier, that, that happens because people are hanging on to things rather than forgiving one another. We need the gospel. We desperately need the gospel. We need to come back to understand that, that God has offered us incomprehensible grace. He has forgiven us a debt that it was impossible for us to even think about ever repaying. And so because we are forgiven people, we will forgive others as well. See, this is the kind of community that that Jesus calls us to be. This is the kind of the community that the church is called to be, a community that's marked by truth and marked by grace. 
We do the, the daring hard work of, of holding each other accountable and correcting one another when we do wrong. And then we do the hard work of offering forgiveness and reconciliation and making peace with one another, a community of truth and a community of grace. It's so important for us to, to grasp the truth of this passage. See, there's always going to be sin and always going to be conflict in the church because, frankly, you and I are here, and we are imperfect people. All of us make mistakes. All of us sin. All of us do the wrong thing. And by the way, this isn't a new thing. If you worry that the earliest church didn't have these same kind of problems, go back and read some of the letters in the New Testament. Read the, the letter that Paul wrote to the to church in Corinth. Read 1 Corinthians. This church was a mess. And actually, he calls them back to what Jesus instructs here. In 1 Corinthians, there's this situation in, in the church in Corinth, and, and this guy is living in sin, and, and no one's calling him out on it. And, and Paul, this early church leader, is saying, no, you have to call sin, sin. You have to speak truth and hold this guy accountable. Correct him for his behavior. And then there's a gap, and there's, he writes another letter, 2 Corinthians, and it looks like that guy actually turned from his sin. And in 2 Corinthians, he's saying, listen, you've got to forgive this guy. He turned from his sin. You've got to reconcile and make peace with him. It's the same thing that Jesus is calling us to. You speak truth, you correct one another, and then you forgive and always offer that grace of forgiveness. See, the church always needs this reminder because it's, it's simply not natural for us. And it is so powerful for transforming a community with the power of the gospel. It bears witness to the truth that, that binds us together, that we are rescued in Jesus, and so we can be people of truth and grace. Now, for some of us, it's hard to believe that this can actually work. And every time we run a scenario through our head of actually obeying what Jesus says here, we think, well, that's just going to add, end badly, that they're not going to like me coming and correcting them, or, or what if they then correct me on something, or what if they don't forgive me? We get really worked up about this, at least me in my head. I, I do this kind of thing all the time. But I've seen that this can actually work, and we have to trust Jesus that it will actually work in the community of faith. I remember one time in college, I was with a group of friends. We just watched a movie, and we were talking about it afterwards, and we were talking about the interpretation of a particular scene uh, in this. And, and I was pretty sure I was right about what this is, and a, a friend disagreed with me. And, and in the course of that, that conversation, I made kind of an offhand comment that, that undermined the intelligence of my friend. And the conversation moved on. No one said anything about it. But the next day, my, my friend pulled me aside and said, I mean, what you said really hurt. And, and actually, it's become kind of a, a regular pattern of, of our conversations. Now, that's a really hard conversation, right? It's very hard for my friend to admit that and to be vulnerable enough to speak to me about it. And it was really hard for me to hear that, that I had done something to hurt another person. It's really hard to hear that I'm not perfect. But it was an incredibly important thing for me to hear because it made me realize that, that I, I was doing what he said. I was consistently tearing people down. I thought that this was all in fun. We we're just being sarcastic, whatever. But really, it was destroying and eroding friendships. And because he cared enough about me, and because he cared enough about our friendship to actually talk to me about it, it was an opportunity for me to repent and for, ask for his forgiveness, and then for us to actually grow deeper in our friendship. And to this day, he remains one of my most respected friends, because he's doing the hard work of relationships. It's very easy for us to have surface-level relationships with other people put on a smile, how are you doing, and that's the, the, the most depth that you go to. 
it's much harder to work through difficult things, to actually speak truth to others, because we know we will have times when we will have to have truth spoken to us. And yet, if we follow what Jesus is saying here, deep, true, authentic community is possible. See, this is not easy stuff, but it is so important for us. See, see we have the opportunity to, to rewrite the narrative on, on what church is perceived to be, right? The, the kind of uh, notorious line about church is that churches are places of gossip and grudges and fighting and all that stuff, and there's plenty of, of fodder for that kind of a thing. But, but let's change the script on that. So we have an opportunity to change the perception of what church is all about. And, and, and we do this on one hand because this is what Jesus calls us to. And, and we want to be part of that kind of authentic community that can actually speak truth in grace, to always be a place where we are growing together and forgiving one another. We, we want to be part of that kind of a community. But also, we do this because the witness of the gospel is at stake here. And remember what Jesus prayed. We, we looked at that at the outset. Jesus prayed in John 17 that we would be one and that through our union with, the, with each other, others would come to believe the truth of the gospel. And that's what's at stake in how we live together as a community. So not only is this about the health of the church, the body of believers, but it's also about the believability of the gospel. So when you and I, when we deal with conflict the right way, when we dare to speak truth, and when we do the hard work of forgiveness, we testify to those who don't yet know Jesus that he has the power to transform people like us. And that means this is bigger than just, than just one church family, right? There are dozens of congregations in, in Mason County. How we speak about each other, how we treat one another, that really matters. And actually this morning, pastors from several different churches in town are preaching on this same passage. A few of us have, have started gathering together for prayer. And, and, and this morning, we're, we're preaching Jesus' teaching on sin and conflict and, and forgiveness because we believe this is so important for the health of each individual congregation, but also for the health of the larger Christian community in Mason County. See, we want our community to see the power of the gospel to transform lives, to make us people of truth and grace. And, and our love for each other, our commitment to each other, is crucial to this. We should want the good of, of fellow followers of Jesus. Now, this morning we have uh, the Lord's Supper before us. And this is a simple, small meal that Jesus gave us as a way of remembering that we need him. So we have these little elements, things that we can see and we can touch and we can taste, and they're reminders that, that we are united to Jesus. We are united to him in his death. We are united to him in his resurrection. And as we do that, as we realize that we are connected to him, we realize that we're not alone in this either. We, we are called together in this, and so we're united to one another. There are other people who are united to Christ alongside of us. And actually, Paul when he talks to the, the church in Corinth that had all these different issues of division, he comes back to the way that they take the Lord's Supper as a reminder that they actually belong together and have this union. So here he has to remind them that, that this is an opportunity, is not an opportunity for division. This is an opportunity to come back to what unites us, come back to the gospel. So in 1 Corinthians 11, he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. You see what he's, he's saying here, that we are united to Christ in his death and resurrection, and that means that, that we are not just here, me and Jesus. It means that we've been brought into this community of faith, and, and how we treat one another actually affects our relationship with God. If we are full of bitterness and grudges and refusing to forgive one another, that's getting in the way of actually having this and living out this union that we have with Christ. Now, here's the thing. It's, it's very easy for us to, to come on a Sunday morning and to hear God's word, and, and maybe we agree with it in theory, but to not actually do anything about it. But that doesn't actually do us any good. We're, we're called to obey Jesus. We're called to actually allow God's word to impact how we live. So here's what we're going to do this morning as we take this meal. I want you to reflect, as the, as the plates are passed and as you take the elements, I want you to reflect on the gospel. Reflect on the fact that we are forgiven people. And then as you reflect on the gospel, here's the harder part. I want you to ask God to reveal your own heart. And if there are specific instances where you need to repent, I, I want you to think about what those would be. See, it could be that, that we are being called to some very difficult conversations this week to actually live in obedience to what Jesus is saying. I don't want you to brush those things off. It can be scary to even think about having some of these conversations, but they are so vital for what it means for us to live in obedience to Jesus and to be part of a really gospel-shaped, healthy community. So let's take some time here as we prepare our hearts to, to reflect on the gospel and to reflect on what this calls us to be, actually to, to look at what it means to obey Jesus here. Now, some of us here are not yet followers of Jesus. We're not yet sure what to do with this whole gospel message. I want to ask you to uh, refrain from taking the elements because it's a meal that, that doesn't yet make sense for you. And, and know that we're not judging you. We're not condemning you. We don't want you to feel awkward or anything like that. But I encourage you, as the plates are passed, to, to use this as a time to uh, reflect as well. So as you hear what, what Jesus says about what community is supposed to look like and this hard work of truth and grace, I want you to, to kind of reflect on this a little bit. Have you seen this in action? My guess is maybe that's not what you've seen as, as you've seen church life. And we have to admit that our own imperfections are, are what's getting in the way. It doesn't speak to anything about the insufficiency of the gospel, the insufficiency of Christ. That is human weakness coming out in sinful ways. But I want you to use this time to reflect on what Jesus says and to reflect on what that means if it is actually true. So let's take some time here to, to pray that God would, would stir in our hearts and that it would move us to our union with Christ and how that plays out. God, we admit that there are all sorts of ways that we uh, tend to get this wrong. We, we tend to believe that it is uh, not worth it. Uh, for some of us, it just seems like that the cost is, is too much. We worry about what people will think about us. We worry about what's going to happen to relationships. I pray that you would help us to, first and foremost, understand that we are people who are forgiven in your son, Jesus, and we are united to him in his death. His death, his resurrection, totally transforms the picture for us. 
gives us new life. I pray that you'd help us to live in light of that. I pray that we would not respond to your word in fear, but instead to respond in faith and in repentance. And if you do have specific conversations that you are prompting us to, I pray that you'd give us the strength to actually have those conversations. And I pray that you would go before us with the power of your spirit so that those can be fruitful conversations. And God, I pray for our church family. And I pray for the churches here in Ludington and Mason County. Would you make us people who live out the gospel, who speak truth, who are people who are marked by grace, always forgiving, always coming back to what you have done for us and what it means to be your people. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.